At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, Episode 8, America Rearms, 1945-1950. to So in our last few episodes, we examined some of the early Cold War leaders and looked at the rise of capitalism, especially in the United States. In this episode, I want to pick up from where we left off in Episode 4. We will examine the American response to Stalin's moves in Eastern Europe. As we examined in Episode 4, the Soviet Union and the United States were working cross-purposes from 1945 to 1947. The United States wanted to rebuild and integrate Eastern Europe, which was a major industrial zone, into the world economy. The Allies wanted to avoid a return to the Great Depression, which they believed was exacerbated by closed states and trade barriers. The Soviet Union and Stalin, in contrast, wanted to create a buffer zone in Eastern Europe with friendly Marxist governments to protect themselves against future invasion. The United States saw these Marxist governments as opposed to their attempts to rebuild and integrate Eastern Europe, whereas the Soviet Union viewed any capitalist democratic nation on their border as a potentially hostile neighbor. From the American perspective, U.S. foreign policy during the period was based around two documents, the Long Telegram and NSC-68. The Long Telegram was written by the famed diplomat George Kennan. Kennan had joined the Foreign Service fresh out of college in 1925. In 1929, Kennan began a program in history, politics, culture, and Russian language at the University of Berlin. Kennan thus had a deep understanding about Russia, gained through the personal experience of working there for the State Department and being a student of Russian history. Kennan came to the attention of the Secretary of the Navy, James Forrestal, who offered him a job at the Navy War College. This led to him becoming an influential in Washington policy circles. Although not the only voice in diplomacy during the period, his ideas were very influential. As Henry Kissinger pointed out, quote, Kennan came as close as anyone to authoring the diplomatic doctrine of the period, close quote. After Kennan left government service in 1953, he worked in academia offering critiques of U.S. foreign policy up until his death at 101 in 2005. The Long Telegram was a response by Kennan, then a young diplomat in Moscow, to explain the Soviet Union's opposition to the World Bank and the IMF to officials at the Treasury Department. The telegram would eventually attract a lot of attention in Washington and go on to become an article in Foreign Affairs magazine under the pen name Mr. X, although it was later leaked that Kennan was the author. In the Long Telegram, Kennan took his deep understanding of Russian history and applied it to Soviet foreign policy and how the United States should respond to Stalin's moves. Kennan argued that the United States could not work with the Soviet Union because of its history and Marxist ideology, nor would it serve the interests of the United States to wage war against the Soviet Union. Kennan argued that a war with the Soviet Union would be unlike World War II. 
the United States and its allies could hardly expect to occupy Russia. Moreover, Russia had a large, battle-hardened army of 4 million men. Any potential Anglo-American conquest of Russia would be costly in both treasure and blood. Atomic bombs were useful for destroying cities and killing people. They were not as good at getting people to change their minds. Moreover, on a realistic level, the American society would probably fail to support a conquest of the Soviet Union, especially after years of pro-Soviet propaganda when they were our ally. Therefore, the United States would contain the Soviet Union and communism in those lands that it already controlled. Kennan argued that the moralist, universal, or Wilsonian approach to American foreign policy was deeply flawed. In contrast, Kennan argued for taking a realist approach. He believed that the conviction that all nations would subscribe to international rules or laws was a false construct. Kennan argued that history has taught us that people have aspirations to power, irrational hatreds, prejudices, and jealousies which could not be expunged via parliamentary procedures or Robert's Rules of Order. More importantly, he argued that people have substantially different values, so even agreeing to rules would be difficult. Nor did he believe that America was strong enough in resources or will to attempt to impose its morals and values on the rest of the world. Therefore, he contended that the United States should have two primary aims, one, to protect the security of the nation, and two, to advance the welfare of the American people by promoting a world order that promoted peaceful development along capitalist lines. Kennan argued that America should embrace a realist foreign policy built around maintaining an equilibrium in which no nation or alliance of nations could control the world, basically a return to the balance of power politics. Kennan contended that there were five major industrial regions of the world that mattered. The United States, Great Britain, Germany, Central or Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, and Japan. The Allies occupied half of Germany, the U.S. occupied Japan, and Great Britain was an ally. Therefore, the United States needed to make sure that the Soviets or its proxy Marxist allies didn't take control of the rest of Europe or Japan. Kennan did recognize the value of other regions to the United States in regards to natural resources, strategic locations, or markets like Latin America. However, it was unclear which of these regions the United States would actively defend versus let potentially fall to communism. This led to two competing schools of thought. The first was the, quote, strong point defense. This view advocated defending critical positions like West Germany and Japan as key regions against communism and Soviet aggression. The other school of thought advocated a, quote, perimeter defense, or the belief that the United States should protect any region under communist threat. It's important to note, however, that Kennan didn't believe that the Soviet Union would wage a direct aggressive war with the United States. Kennan believed that neither the Soviet, the Russian economy nor its people were in a state to risk another great power confrontation as a result of their losses in World War II. Stalin was no Hitler. He had no fixed timetable for aggression and would prefer, if possible, to make gains via political means versus military. Miscalculation, however, remained a serious danger. The Allies and Kennan feared the possibility of Soviet conquest by psychological means. They feared that the people of Western Europe and Japan would be so demoralized by the war that they would be vulnerable to communist-led coups and propaganda. As Kennan said, quote, It is the shadows rather than substance of things that move the hearts and sway the deeds of statesmen. Close quote. 
Ultimately, Kennan believed that if communism could achieve a propaganda victory in Western Europe, the United States could fall as well to the dangers of communism. Democracy might not require the existence of a completely democratic world, but neither could it survive in one that was completely totalitarian. Since Kennan saw the Soviet Union as largely a psychological threat, his recommendations for dealing with them tended to take on a psychological logic. One, he argued for the restoration of the balance of power through the encouragement of Western Europe and Japan that the United States stood with them. Therefore, the United States would seek to create not a bipolar or unipolar world, but a multipolar world with power centers in Europe and Asia as well as Russia and the United States. Two, the U.S. would seek to exploit the differences within the international Marxist movement. Where possible, the United States would attempt to divide Marxist nations and take advantage of those natural divisions that already existed, like those between Tito and Stalin. Therefore, he preferred a nuanced approach to communism. Thus, the United States couldn't publicly condemn all communists because by doing so, it couldn't exploit the divisions it sought in the Marxist international movement. Basically, divide and conquer. Three, the modification of Soviet action over time. The United States would attempt to slowly model Soviet behavior through our own diplomatic actions to have them accept an international order based on our principles. Kennan cautioned the use of direct military intervention to stop communist takeovers. He argued that this would only entangle America in foreign civil wars from which it would be difficult to extricate ourselves. He believed that such wars and interventions also ran the risk of turning world opinion against the United States. In his strategy, Kennan placed a lot of emphasis on providing economic aid to Western Europe and Japan, which he argued would make them strong enough to quell communists internally and stand up to the Soviet Union. Nevertheless, Kennan and the administration did not totally discount the use of force to contain the Soviet Union. Washington relied heavily on the atomic bomb as a deterrent against the Soviet Union, especially in Europe. The U.S. Navy was also heavily deployed to, quote, show the flag, reinsuring America's allies and intimidating the Soviets, especially in the Mediterranean. Kennan also believed that the Soviet Union was bound to fail in the long run. He argued that it would be hard for the Soviet Union to maintain its control of Eastern Europe. The Soviet Union, with a population of some 100 million, now ruled an area with some 90 million people. Second, these nations had long histories of self-rule and a complicated, often negative history with both the Soviet Union and Tsarist Russia dating back to before the war. Kennan believed it was only a matter of time before these regions broke away from Soviet domination. He also reasoned that the Soviet Union would not be able to control communism in China and that a communist China might be more dangerous to the Soviet Union than the United States, as China would challenge Russia's leadership of the communist movement and wouldn't be a threat to the United States for decades to come, given its backward economic base. Secretary of State Atkinson found these arguments so convincing that in order to avoid doing anything that might drive the Chinese communists further into the arms of the Soviet Union, he favored allowing the continuation of trade in non-military goods with China and opposed aiding Chiang's regime in Taiwan. By August 1949, the State Department officially abandoned Chiang Kai-shek arguing that no amount of American aid could save him and the nationalists. Despite Kennan's belief in realism, many Americans in government still approached foreign policy from the Wilsonian perspective. Truman himself, like Roosevelt, detested the European balance of power system 
and sought whenever possible to attach his goals to general principles applicable to all mankind in keeping with the UN Charter. As we have seen at the beginning of his presidency, as FDR's successor, despite his personal misgivings about the Soviet Union, he was initially open to working with the Soviets and was open to hearing the opinions of pro-Soviet Democrats like Henry Wallace. However, as events in Eastern Europe played out, Truman sought the advice of others like Forrestal, who had less forgiving views of the Soviets. By 1948, Truman saw the struggle between the U.S. and Soviet Union as a contest between good and evil, not as a contest between superpowers over spheres of influence. Nonetheless, the administration did share Cannon's belief in a strong point defense versus the perimeter defense, concentrating on key areas such as Japan and West Berlin, while devoting very little resources or thought to places like China and South Korea. The administration believed that, however regrettable, the loss of these places would not endanger American society. In 1947, in the Mediterranean, Truman followed the Kennan formula in backing Greece and Turkey with economic and military support to stand up to the Soviet and communist aggression. Although it was couched in the Wilsonian rhetoric of supporting free peoples who were resisting subjugation by armed minorities and outside pressures. Truman also secured Western European confidence and security through the Marshall Plan and the NATO alliance. At the time, most American exports were being bought by Europe to rebuild, but Europe was quickly running out of dollars to pay for American goods. The American tax-cutting Republican Congress, however, didn't share Truman's concerns about Europe's well-being. They felt that the United States was spending itself to death, and it was, a time, it was, it was time to concentrate on America's own domestic issues. Truman convinced them to allocate credit to those nations to buy American goods in what became the Marshall Plan by explaining to them that if they did nothing, Europe would fall to communism and that by this was part of a larger communist conspiracy for world domination. This ploy worked and Congress passed the funding, but the national fear level had been risen artificially and the Republicans would become ever more radical in their opposition to communism. The United States not only offered Marshall planned funds to Western Europe, but initially to Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Many Americans didn't want Russia to participate, though, as they were justifying the need for the loan as a defense against communism. They, would, they wouldn't be able to get the bill through Congress with the Soviet Union as one of the nations receiving funds. The Soviets, however, gave the plan serious consideration. Molotov and 89 other Soviet economic experts and clerks arrived in Paris in June 1947 to review the proposal. The Soviets proposed that each nation submit a plan for recovery to the Americans. However, the British and French wanted to submit a European-wide plan for recovery. They also argued over restrictions being placed on Germany. The Americans wanted to rebuild Germany, whereas the Soviets did not want to see or revive Germany, which had invaded Russia twice within the last 40 years. Within a week, Molotov and the Soviet delegation left the conference returning to Moscow. Czechoslovakia, on the other hand, went ahead and applied for funds, but Stalin saw this move by the Americans as a plot to entice the Eastern European nations out of Russia's orbit. Therefore, Stalin began to consolidate his position by establishing loyal communist dictatorships there, as we saw in Episode 4. In response to these moves, the NATO alliance was formed, the first peacetime alliance in American history. With 12 nations signing the treaty, the U.S., Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Portugal, Norway, Great Britain, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Truman also reactivated the Selective Service or Draft, which he had allowed to lapse in 1946. 
Truman then reorganized the military into the Department of Defense, established the CIA, the NSA, the NSC, a think tank to contemplate national security. All of these institutions would play major roles in the Cold War and in U.S. history up to the present day. The United States also established a large standing army in peacetime for the first time in its history. Prior to this, the U.S. had always relied on a small professional army and a Marine Corps to defend its interests. If a war occurred as, it, as in the Civil War or either of the World Wars, America would raise a large, mostly conscript army, although many would volunteer, to fight its wars. After these wars, the army was drastically downsized to a small professional force again. This was done primarily to save money and because the Americans feared the danger of a military dictatorship. No more after 1950. The United States would maintain a large force deployed around the world to the present day. Kennan's arguments did have its critics. Some on the American far right, such as General George Patton, before his death, and General Curtis LeMay urged war with the Soviet Union as the best solution, especially given our possession of the atomic bomb and the Soviet Union's comparative weakness. On the center-right, many, such as Walter Lippmann, argued that the containment would result in psychological and geopolitical overextension of the United States while draining American resources. Lippmann argued that American foreign policy should be guided by a case-by-case analysis of American interest and not by a general principle presumed to be universal and applicable in every situation. Another school of thought, led by Winston Churchill, argued for a negotiated settlement with the Soviets. Churchill argued that the Allies were in the strongest possible position to negotiate a settlement with the Soviet Union, given their relative weakness in comparison to the United States. He argued that the Soviet Union would only strengthen with time, thus weakening the Allied hand in any future negotiations. On the American left, there was Henry Wallace, the former vice president and other former New Deal Democrats, who argued America had no moral responsibility or right to halt the growth of communism. They believed that the United States and the Soviet Union were fundamentally morally equivalent and that the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe was legitimate. They urged a return to Roosevelt's policies of cooperation with the Soviets. Wallace argued the only time military force was justifiable was when approved by the United Nations and that economic aid should be distributed by the UN as well, and he opposed the Marshall Plan for this reason. Wallace, like many American populists of the period, had a distrust of the British and believed that the nation was being manipulated by them to remain committed to international involvement in other people's business. Wallace believed that the same moral principles which govern private life should govern international affairs. In his view, America had lost its moral compass and was practicing a villainous Machiavellian foreign policy. He argued that since prejudice, hatred, and fear were the root causes of international conflict, The United States had no moral right to intervene abroad until it had banished these scourges from its own society. Wallace's view and that of his fellow New Deal Democrats quickly lost support, though, as Czechoslovakia fell to a communist coup, Berlin was blockaded, China fell to communism, and the Soviet Union detonated its first atomic bomb in the wake of Soviet spy ring scandals in the West. When Wallace ran for president in 1948, he only won a million votes, mostly in his home state of New York against the 24 million of Truman. He came in behind even the Dixiecrat, Strom Thurmond. However, Wallace's ideas would go on to play an important part of the Cold War in modern American history. This new radicalism reaffirmed America's belief in liberty, but in the process turned it against the nation itself. 
postulating the moral equivalency between the United States and the Soviet Union and the belief that international opinion was a better guide to U.S. foreign policy than Wilsonian principle or realist machinations. Wallace's ideas became the foundation of the radical left's critique of the United States that existed throughout the Cold War and in many ways into our own present time. The other major critics of the administration in Kennan was the so-called China lobby. Composed of businessmen, Republicans, and members of the military, they dated back to the 1890s with the American conquest of Hawaii and the Philippines. They saw America as first and foremost a Pacific power with trade interests across Asia and the Pacific Rim. They bristled at the fact that the war in the Pacific had taken a back seat to the war in Europe during World War II and were enraged with the fall of China to communism. They openly blamed the Truman administration, Kennan, and the State Department for their short-sightedness and their disinterest in China. The China lobby also overlapped with many radicals on the Republican right who wanted to take a more militant stand against communism. They were angry with their own candidate, Dewey, who in 1948, during the presidential election, refused to attack Truman's foreign policy. With the fall of China, they went on the war path. They accused the Democrats, especially those like Wallace, of not just losing Eastern Europe and China to, of, to communists, but being in league with the enemy or outright spies. Within the State Department and elsewhere in government and policy circles, many argued that Kennan's advice was too intuitive. They contended that there was no way we could truly know, understand, or measure Soviet intentions. Therefore, U.S. policy should be shaped by what could be measured and known for certain. What was known for certain was Stalin's conventional forces far outnumbered the U.S. and allied forces in Europe. Moreover, the Soviet Union was developing its own atomic capabilities, which would weaken the deterrence factor of America's own atomic weapons. These more militant arguments gained momentum after 1949 in the wake of the Soviet atomic bomb, the fall of China to communism, and the scandal of the Soviet spy rings. It was only a matter of time before the Soviet Union developed the atomic bomb, and realistically it's not clear what further help, outside of direct involvement, the United States could have offered the nationalists in the Chinese Civil War. These events in themselves did not greatly weaken the American position in the Cold War, but their occurrence, especially in the same year, shifted the perception of power from Washington to Moscow and created a sense of weakness in the West. NSC-68 built off these events to forge a new American response to the change situation. The plan built off of Kennan's long telegram, but was also influenced by the memory of Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor and the initial success of the Japanese had come as a surprise and shock to U.S. officials in Washington, and they were determined not to let it happen again. These fears were, of course, magnified with atomic weapons. A Soviet surprise atomic attack could take out the whole base and a fleet at Pearl Harbor versus just a few battleships as in 1941. NSC-68 advocated a large expansion in the military budget of the United States, the development of a hydrogen bomb, and increased military aid to allies of the United States. It made the containment of global communist expansion a high priority. It did, however like the long telegram, reject the alternative policies of friendly relations and conquest of the Soviet Union. NSC-68, like Kennan, rejected a first strike against the Soviet Union as both morally repugnant and questions its effectiveness to bring about the capitulation of the Soviet Union, even with atomic weapons. However, in contrast to the long telegram, NSC-68 argued for a perimeter defense. The United States could 
would def- defend any region that came under Soviet or communist threat. They argued that the communists, with their conquest of Eastern Europe, China, and the Soviet Union, controlled a vast area with immense natural resources, industries, and most of the human population. Therefore, the United States could ill afford any more regions falling to communist regimes. They also disagreed with Kennan's belief that the Soviet Union was overextended in Eastern Europe. They saw no economic, political, or military means by which the Eastern Europeans could evict the Soviets from their territory and seriously doubted that the Soviet Empire would collapse as a result of its own internal problems. NSC 68 also challenged the assumption made by Kennan and others that the United States had limited resources to maintain a perimeter defense. President Truman had insisted on holding down the U.S. defense budget to roughly $13 billion, or in today's money, about $128 billion. By their estimations, the United States would have to spend around $50 billion a year, or $494 billion in 2016 dollars, to meet the Soviet threat. Just for comparison, to provide context to these numbers, the current U.S. defense spending for 2015 was $598 billion. The largest U.S. defense budget ever was in 1944 at $224 billion, or roughly $3 trillion in 2016 money, which represented about 40% of the U.S. GDP in 1944. Truman believed that spending on the military, although necessary, had a low return on investment and in the long run robbed the American people of goods and services. What NSC 68 proposed was a Keynesian approach to defense spending. They proposed that they could increase spending on defense without raising taxes or the national debt. They proposed spending a fixed amount of GDP on defense. Therefore, as the economy grew, so would defense spending, allowing for a military buildup to counter the Soviets while allowing for the consumer society to still flourish. Moreover, given the relative size of the American economy to that of the Soviet Union, the United States could afford to spend between 67% of its GDP on defense without hurting the economy. If anything, they argued it would actually help the U.S. economy as it would produce more jobs and hence funds that could be spent in the consumer economy. This would have long-term economic structural impacts on the United States, creating what became known as the military-industrial complex. Before the Cold War, few businesses were solely dedicated to the production of arms. During World War II, civilian companies like Ford or International Harvester retooled to produce weapons like tanks and rifles versus cars or tractors. In contrast to World War II, the Cold War U.S. had a number of companies such as Lockheed Martin and General Dynamics almost solely committed to building weapons systems. NSC-68 eventually won large-scale support in the wake of the North Korean invasion of South Korea in late 1950, which was undoubtedly authorized by Stalin. The North Korean invasion confirmed the assumption by both Kennan and NSC-68 that Soviets might resort to war by proxy even in the face of American atomic weapons to achieve their objectives. Fighting in Korea and the early American setbacks there also bolstered arguments made in NSC-68 that the U.S. lacked the conventional forces to handle what we would call low-intensity conflicts. European capitals especially doubted America's capabilities to defend them against the Soviet threat as they watched early American setbacks in Korea. As Atkinson told the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, quote, if they, the Soviets, had gone into Greece, quote, we don't have any troops in a thousand miles. We couldn't do anything if they decided to invade Iran, and we would have a terrible time doing anything about West Berlin if they decided to seize it. 
The U.S. had 136,000 troops in West Germany, but these forces were tied up with occupation duties, and the single battle-ready division only had 12 tanks. Indeed, following the mass demobilization from 1945 to 1946, the U.S. had no large standing army anywhere in the world that was ready to fight. In contrast, the Soviets had 25 fully armed divisions in Eastern Europe. Even the vaunted American atomic bomb was for much of the early war a bluff. The American stockpile in 1947 was exactly zero. Although the United States did have enough components for constructing 10 bombs, which were quickly assembled, the stockpile was so low because the U.S. had closed both its uranium enrichment plants after the war due to costs. Nevertheless, the plants were quickly back in full production. By spring 1947, and by that summer, the United States had enough material for an additional three bombs. In conclusion, this period saw a number of plans develop as to how to deal with the Soviet Union, and it also had more than a few prophetic insights about the future of the Cold War and America's place in the future international order. Kennan's long telegram was far-sighted in its assessment of the Soviet Union's inability to control Eastern Europe and the Chinese Communist Party. Kennan in many ways was right that the Soviet Union lacked the long-term resources and strength to both challenge the U.S. and maintain a vast empire. I think this points to the power of history and liberal arts that we spoke about in episode zero. Kennan wasn't armed with a crystal ball or a mathematical formula, but a deep understanding of Russian history and culture that served America well. That being said, that's not to say that there were not elements of truth to the criticisms of the long telegram. Littman was prophetic in his own right when he warned of the danger of cookie-cutter policies being adopted for different parts of the world in different circumstances, and we will come to see this in Vietnam. Churchill was probably right that from 1946 to 1947 was the best time for the Allies to come to an agreement or an arrangement with the Soviets. However, the Allies had been meeting with the Soviets since 1945, and there is no definitive proof that we would have been able to achieve a lasting settlement, especially given Stalin's perspective laid out in previous episodes. NSC-68 correctly estimated the United States' relative military weakness in regards to the Soviet Union, and it pinpointed the weakness of the long telegram that ignored the rest of the world outside of the major industrial regions. Henry Wallace was correct in asking the question, by what moral authority did we have to interfere with other countries? This is still a question as, we, as a nation we wrestle with today. How do we justify to the American people why A, we need to kill people in other lands, or B, why their son or daughter needs to be sent to war? I want to thank you for listening to Episode 8, America Rearms, 1945 to 1950. Join us for Episode 9, The Marshall Plan, where we will be taking a deeper look at the USA to Western Europe in the early Cold War. Feel free to comment and rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook at the History of the Cold War Podcast and Twitter at Cold War Podcast, Cold War Podcast, one word, to find our latest news and Cold War content. Or feel free to email questions to coldwarpodcast at gmail.com, Cold War Podcast, one word.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.